0: Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad?
1: Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash acast and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
2: g-a-l-d-e-m g-a-l-d-e-m
1: This home is good.
3: Welcome to season three of Growing Up with Galdem, inspired by our book I Will Not Be Erased, our stories about growing up as people of colour.
1: My name is Charlie franklis Cuth. I'm the editor-in-chief at Galdem. Galdem is an award-winning media company committed to platforming the voices, perspectives and creative work of people of colour of marginalised genders. Each week on the podcast we invite a guest to respond to old diary entries, letters or text messages from their younger selves. The point is to nurture important discussions
3: about growing up. I'm Natty Kasimbala. I'm a former editor and longtime contributor at Galdem. You can find Growing Up With Galdem on Apple Podcasts, the Acast app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And we are so pleased to be joined today by Olota who is a Nigerian writer and speaker, whose work focuses on human rights, inclusion and social justice in the areas of gender, sexualities and urbanisation. Her TED Talk on Urban Justice, Who Belongs in a City, was selected as one of the 10 most notable TED Talks of 2017. And in 2019, she was awarded the Gerald Crack Prize for her essay on sexual violence and secondary victimisation, Mothers and Men. She is the former staff writer at The Correspondent and the co-founder of Square, a creative consultancy and artistic agency focusing on diversity and inclusion through corporate
3: collaborations. Awesome. So I guess I'll jump straight in. Yeah, it's such an honour, like Charlie said, to have you here on the show with us today. And I wondered if we could just start out with you talking us through a little bit of the project Quietly Queer and how that came about, because I think it's a really inspiring execution.
2: Oh, wow. Thank you. So Quietly Queer was the result of me wanting to foreground the reality that the vast majority of people who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or any other label that falls under the non-heteronormative, non-cisnormative sexuality and gender identity, most of the time such people are closeted, what we describe as closeted, right? So what that means is that your sexual orientation or gender identity will be known only to yourself or to a very small circle of people. And because so much of our understanding of queer identity and queer mobility in the world comes from US-centric perspectives, we have a lot of focus on visibility and being out and being proud. And I think that that's extremely valuable, but I also know that people who are out and proud are visible are the minority. The vast majority of us are not out. So what does it mean if the people who are shaping what LGBTQ realities look like are in the minority. It's a misrepresentation of what our community actually looks like, how our community actually navigates the world, how we actually live. And there's also this tension in especially activist spaces where people imagine that the reason that LGBT people are held back or discriminated against or experience violence is the lack of courage of closeted queers, which blows me because it's like, Closeted queers are not the problem. Homophobia is the problem. Transphobia is the problem. Why are we blaming people who are making informed decisions to protect themselves for the violence that we're all experiencing? And why do we delegitimize the choices that such people make? If the point of being free is figuring out how to live in a world that works to make us unfree, then I do believe that there is freedom in closetedness. right? You choose the limits of what you're forced to experience. You decide whether or not people who want to do you harm can find you to do you harm. I think that there's power there. I think there's agency there. And I think it's important to recognize that and honor it because that's the reality of most of the people that we consider our community. So that's where Quietly Queer came from. I wanted to honor that and tell that story and tell those stories or provide a space for closeted people to tell their own stories without making it into some sort of performance to show straight people, we're we're here, we exist and we're not afraid of you because straight people are not the point of our existence. We are the point of our existence.
1: That's really interesting. And I guess my first question to you is around the responsibility that you then hold as someone who is perhaps carrying a lot of these stories, a lot of closeted narratives. And I can imagine that that must, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know if it weighs heavily or maybe it feels brilliant. Like I'm, I'm interested.
2: It felt wonderful. It still feels wonderful. I think, you know, for people who live in repressive contexts like Nigeria, there's a lot of, if you know, you know, that informs the ways that we're in community with other queer people. And that, if you know, you know, usually manifests in person. So I've never really experienced community with closeted people unless I know them in real life, offline life. So to get a chance to be in virtual community with people who are closeted felt like a privilege and it felt like such a gift. I felt very honored that people trusted me with their stories. For a lot of the people who submitted stories, the thing that made it onto the website was one part of a much larger conversation that I was able to have with them about their experiences and about their hopes. So I really felt as though people trusted me and the fact that they trusted me allowed me to experience a Mm. not often talked about side of something that I value very highly, which is queerness. So it has never weighed heavily. In fact, it has felt the opposite. It, It was very energizing, very inspiring. Even when the stories themselves were heartbreaking for the amount of fear and confusion and sadness and grief they contained. Just the fact that I was able to be in relationship with these people, even if only for a brief time, and they trusted me with their stories in perpetuity, it felt like a blessing and it still does.
3: Amazing. I guess I wanted to talk a bit about something that you've touched on before, which was like queer motherhood as well. And I think that's such an interesting like, level to expand on that I don't think has been as represented in the mainstream or in media or any of that side of things so yeah I guess I wanted to hear about like your own journey with that kind of narrative and also any challenges that you think that you faced (laughs) as a queer person raising a child in especially in an environment where you're not yeah exactly
2: yeah that is a huge it's so interesting the timing of this because my partner and I were just talking yesterday or the day before I don't even know that I have her permission to share this but I'm going to share it anyway and I think she'll forgive me because she loves me (laughs) but we were just talking about how we both want to have another child or children we both want to grow our family and we both feel quite certain that we can't without costing ourselves the lives that we fought so hard to have because we're finally at a place where we're Starting to access stability in people's responses to us as lesbians who are parenting in Nigeria. We're finally at a place where people are like, okay, I don't understand it, but you know, it's cool, it's whatever. There are people who think that if you're queer and parenting, you should hide your queerness from your child. That's not what I believe. My daughter has always known about my sexuality, she's always met my partners, and she considers my partner, the person that I'm with now, her other parent very in fact this morning she was like i'm the only one who comes to school with both of her parents like she's very like (laughs) and at school she'll talk to her friends about she's always having conversations about lesbianism at school i've told her i feel like we need to stop like they don't understand and i'm like they don't understand because we're in nigeria and people have these conservative beliefs in fact, the last time it came up, she was like, "You know what? I'm going to stop wasting my time." I was like, "You should, you should stop wasting your time." Oh my god! How old is she? <laughs> she's eight. She's eight. But the thing she learned that early, <laughs> wait, she did because she's just like, "What are they talking about?" But because she's older um, and she can stand up for herself and she can speak for herself, and I had her in a previous relationship, many of the complications that would come with having more children. I've already either lived through and worked through or they didn't even come up. So things like what names go on her birth certificate, figuring out second parent adoption. You know, if you have a child with your lesbian partner, there are places where there is literally no framework for your child's existence. And that can really complicate everything. So we know that we would love more children, but we also, we're kind of tired of fighting all the time just to be able to exist. So we've had to come to this very uneasy place where it's like we would like this, but also we want to be able to have some peace, some rest, some ease as lesbians who are raising any number of children. And we have this one and she's amazing, as you can tell. So we'll just keep it that way. But there have been straight people who are like, aren't you confusing your child? And I'm like, no, the reason you're confused is because you have this <laughs> ridiculous idea in your mind, despite abundant evidence that only heterosexual couples exist. It's like I'm literally standing right in front of you as a homosexual. So you're wrong. So you're the one who's confusing yourself by choice. Good luck with that. My daughter, on the other hand, doesn't hold on to the logical ideas when there's no evidence for mm-hmm. them. So she's good, amazing. that's incredible. She oh.
1: I'd yeah, I, I, I would have liked to have had a friend like her when I was eight years old. Um, just one last question before we move on to your extract. I was really interested in what you said about sort of attempting to find your peace in this moment. And I wonder, like, how have you been finding your peace on in a day-to-day sense, like, while still maintaining the fight? Can you do both of those things at the same time?
2: It's extremely difficult to do both of those things at the same time. And I'm doing the fighting less and less now because the peace matters more to me. So there are many advantages that I have. I I prefer the word advantage to the word privilege because privilege is so meaningless really. So there are many advantages that I have that allow me to live in something of a bubble, right? I have financial stability. I have, well, pre-pandemic international mobility. I have the benefit of high quality education. So if somebody tries to step to me, I can turn on my best I went to a good school voice and then they're like, okay, I'm going to leave you alone. So there are many of these advantages ah. that, <laughs> that allow me to determine and enforce the limits of my life. So I live inside a very carefully curated bubble and it's a bubble that's full of love and it's a bubble that is full of people who are intentional about being careful and caring towards me and one another in that space. And... It's the thing that keeps me going because spending all of my time defending my humanity to people who refused to accept my humanity was just it was depleting and i can't remember who said it but it's one of these brilliant black women writers you cannot make a moral appeal to a person who has no conscience i can't remember how it goes exactly so me being in the fight all of the time was number one exhausting number two ultimately pointless so What I'm focusing on is figuring out how to grow that bubble because there are very clear criteria for being on the inside of that bubble. You must understand that human beings are diverse. You must celebrate, in fact, that human beings are diverse. You must be eager to encounter this diversity. So I'm not just preoccupied with sexual orientation. I also think about diversity in terms of class and ability and a variety of things. And so there are people in the world already. There are people in my society already who are interested in building safety into our interpersonal relations, in rejecting violence, in rejecting dehumanization. So instead of fighting the people who are still invested in these things, I'm just more interested now in finding people who are not and then building community with those people, trusting that as the circle or the bubble grows larger, the people who have capacity will convert whoever wants to join but those of us on the inside are still taking care of one another, are still respectful of one another's humanity, and we're still safe. So I'm I'm very much divesting from the fight and leaning more into community building with people who already care about safety and love.
3: I think that's such an important
2: point. And I, I'm hearing
3: more and more people who I would like to say or engage in activism talk about that kind of more positive like agenda. And I was just thinking, it's almost like, it's like an equality pyramid scheme at this stage. Like you convert more people, <laughs> yes. they convert more people. There's a whole exactly. little echo chain. Yeah. exactly Yeah, so I fully, fully back that. Um, and I think it's really great. And it comes with almost like the experience of trying and maybe failing or trying and winning mm-hmm. sometimes and finding your community. So if mm-hmm. we can rewind, take it all the way back to yourself, perhaps when you didn't have that support system and that bubble, I would love for you to read your amazing mm. extract to us now, if you can, and then we'll get into all kinds of questions on that afterwards.
2: So the context of this extract, it's a letter that I wrote to myself. So I, I wrote it, I think, when I was 25, and I and I addressed it to myself when I was 16. And I had only just begun to work through the effects that sexual trauma and homophobia and all of these very pedestrian violences (laughs) had had on my psyche and my ability to honour myself. And so this is, I think, towards the end of that letter that I had written. Never forget that you are so much more than a body. You are a force, invincible, rising, here. The world has never seen anything like you, so it will fight hard against you. You are strong enough to push back, to claim your space and to make room for the others who will follow. You cannot be broken. You will learn this for sure because life will try. Listen to yourself. Trust yourself. You are so much more than you realize. So much of what you need is already within you. Give yourself time, especially when you are sad. Don't let anyone tell you you cry too much. All of the sorrow that you experience is fashioning within you compassion, a heart that is too soft to break, that swells with love for people like you who are told that they are unworthy. You are a date palm dancing in the desert, bending in the wind, majestic and life-giving and undeniable. You are the first of your name and the world will say it. Oh, darling, it will.
3: Thank you so much for reading that, it's such a beautiful piece of text, and that opening line for me is so visceral, I think especially in these times when we're quite restrained in the physical spaces that we can actually inhabit, it's a really powerful reminder to kind of step outside of your physical being and pay attention to who you are beyond that. And so I guess my first question was, why did that feel like such an important message to give your teenage self specifically, and how did it kind of respond to what you were going through at the time?
2: Because so much of the pain that had been forced on me in my teenage years were because of the body that I'm in, right? So being in a body that is widely accepted to be a legitimate receptacle of violence, right? It's like, yeah, that's a, that's a girl. And people understand, accept, normalize the idea that girls will be punished for the ways that we fail to hold men accountable. Girls will be punished for all of the things that older women and mothers are afraid of. Girls will be punished for the failures of society to eliminate violence. Girls are very much the receptacle of violence in our society. Violent behavior, violent rhetoric, violent ideas are visited on the bodies of girls. And then being a girl who was attracted to girls, there was also the idea that the body that I was in Delegitimized that attraction, Delegitimized the desire that I had to be in companionship, Delegitimized any kind of relationship that I had with other girls, whether it was platonic or not. So if I'm in a platonic relationship with someone, there's a suspicion that it is contaminated with queerness. And if I'm in a romantic relationship with someone, then obviously it's an abomination and I'm going to hell, ha ha ha. <laughs> so it was very important for me to resist the idea that my body determined my possibilities. It was very important for me to remind myself that the violence that had been visited upon my body was because of other people's limited imaginations about the function and the value and the meaning of what a body is. So people look at a body and decide that these are the limits of someone's existence. And I'm like, no, I transcend my physical being. And if I do my work right, my body will be in the ground and it will not matter, right? The same way Maya Angelou or Toni Morrison or James Baldwin, Nina Simone's bodies are in the ground and it doesn't mean a damn thing because they're with us every day, right? So we are more than our bodies and if we hold that, and I think Black women in particular find so many transcendent ways to make this felt in the world because we find ways to just reach across time and space to heal one another, to see one another, to speak to one another. So the idea that We can be limited by our bodies. It's very boring to me. (laughs) I don't enjoy it at all. And I also wanted to remind myself because I carried my pain in my body that I could choose to let that pain go. I could release my body from that pain. I did this exercise. I don't remember where I found it now online, but someone had done it and I thought I would try it. And and it was like a meditation where I really used, I listened to my body and I, I asked you know I asked my hands questions and my shoulders and my back and listened to what they were telling me about what they were carrying and where the pain was locked it felt like I was literally dislodging I don't know how to explain it but it felt like my body was telling me there's something here and I would listen to it and I would look there and I would find something there and I would talk to it and we would it was like we would have a conversation about what it was and why it was there and then I could let it go and It felt like almost overnight I went from being triggered by other people's accounts of of surviving violence or by little reminders in my own daily life. I was on Instagram last night or two nights ago and there was some random celebrity party where this very famous man who raped me when I was 16 was attending and I saw his face completely out of the blue. Imagine being on Instagram and just kind of scrolling and looking at a random video that pops up. And there's your rapist that you've publicly outed on multiple occasions, just parting it up. I know for a fact that before I did this, it would have sent me into a complete spiral. But it felt almost like the fact that I sat with my body and I sat with the pain just allowed me to heal in a way that I would not have been able to before. So thinking of my body as a vessel, thinking of it as... Something that I can tend to in very specific ways, I can tend to my hands literally just by listening to them, or my feet or my back, allows me to understand that my body is mine to love back to wholeness, but it is not the sum of my existence. It is what carries my existence and my consciousness in this world, but it is mine to nurture. It is not me.
1: exactly yeah yeah that's lovely and I guess like this kind of awareness that you've come to about your body and its its purpose for you where were you at in your teenage years in terms of like understanding yourself understanding your consciousness was it kind of like zero or do you think that like you were quite a self-aware teenager
2: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I I I was self-aware in that I was aware that I was strange (laughs) but that was that was the extent of it really I found it very difficult to connect to people I found it very difficult to be at ease with people and I think people found me odd so it was a it was a strange sort of being on the fringes of everything and being very happy to be on the fringes actually so it's not that I felt isolated I was lonely and I didn't want to be but I also didn't understand what the fuck people were (laughs) doing over there so I was like you know
1: Was that in terms of like was that in terms of like everything or was that specifically in relation to queerness or okay, okay.
2: (laughs) It was everything. I didn't understand their preoccupations, I didn't understand their motivations, I just didn't understand it. It was just like what what are we doing and why? What is this (laughs) world? Yeah, yeah. So I wasn't I wasn't self-aware. I was also strangely like popular in that everybody knew who I was, but I didn't really have any friends because I guess everybody knew who I was because I was unanimously voted the strange person, right? It, oh. was, a, it was a very strange thing. Not terrible because I didn't mind it because I'm introverted. I just realized this last year. My partner told me mm-hmm. very in a very casual way, "You're an introvert." I was like, "What? Oh shit, I am." <laughs> so it, it wasn't. It was. Yeah. It wasn't terrible, but I was aware of my strangeness or my detachment from people beyond that I don't think that I was particularly in tune with myself no
3: yeah that's interesting and I guess that makes me curious about like at what stage you kind of felt like you came into yourself and were there any factors in, in particular that you remember that helped you do that
2: oh yes I've I've always sort of been my own person if that makes any sense but I only started to understand what that person was when I was twenty twenty one, because my 21st year of life was extremely tumultuous. So I was in my final year of uni and then I got pregnant and then I found out my mother had cancer and then my mother passed and then I had my daughter. So that year was just sort of like it upended my entire everything. And in some ways I'm, thankful that I had that year because now that I'm at a place where I understand that a body is a vessel, I don't miss my mom as much. I know she's here. So the grief doesn't feel as sharp. But that year gave me so many gifts because it opened the door for me to begin to integrate all of the things that I thought were strange about myself into that discovery of who I am. So yeah, I would say over the last decade, I have had, several big and small epiphanies that have allowed me to become more connected to myself and more more aware and more in tune and more at ease with the consciousness that is contained inside this body. Mm,
3: I think that at easeness is such a hard place to reach for a lot of people. I wondered if you could talk a bit about the difference between being able to be at ease with in terms of sexuality and this idea of kind of closetedness as an internal conflict versus you know mm-hmm. perhaps just something that's a bit more quiet than a loud expression and i think yes. it kind of ties into what you were saying before and i wondered if you had any opinions on that
2: i think the thing about being at ease is well for me it's about the gaze it's about it's about what you're looking at so I'm at ease with myself because I'm focused on myself. When I think about all of the things that I experience in the world, I'm fully aware of the systems and the, I'm aware that I'm not alone in this and I don't produce, I don't believe in that sort of way, oh, you produce your own reality type of thing because <laughs> I, am, I live alongside people and structures and ETC. But I understand that the degree to which I participate in these systems or focus on these systems will impact the degree to which these systems can affect me. So to connect it to the thing you said about being closeted, right? I can think of people who are closeted and at ease with their choices because they're not closeted for the sake of of responding to external forces. They're closeted because that's what works for them. They understand that these are the choices that I'm willing to make. These are the costs that I'm willing to bear. And this is the place where those things intersect. And I feel most at rest. And there's nothing anyone can tell them about, oh, you owe it to the world. you don't That's a logic that I think the LGBT movement has unknowingly adopted from rape apologists actually, because it's the same logic that rape apologists will use to force survivors to speak out before they're ready, knowing fully well that they have no intention of supporting these survivors. If you don't speak out, then the next person that experiences this danger or this harm or this abuse, you're responsible for them. And it's like, no. I didn't create this homophobic system. It is not my sole responsibility to mitigate other people's experiences of homophobia in the world. If it is doable for me, then I will make that choice. And if it is not, then that choice is also legitimate. I know people who understand the power of visibility and the importance of saying something, and they do not prioritize that over their own ability to stay alive and be well inside their life. So they're like, "Let somebody else do that, because I'm over here just living. That's the choice I want to make for myself."
1: Right on! I love that. Oh my goodness, I can't say, believe I said right on. I'm like an American <laughs> from the <laughs> from the 1950s, but that's what came out because I really. Studied. Um sorry just to, to, to talk more. I was wondering what you think your younger self might think of where you are now in the world the life that you're living the peace that you're seeking
2: <laughs> I think she would be very happy that I found peace. I think she would also be very terrified <laughs> of the road that I've taken to get here. this ease is quite new I would say it's only a few months old it, it's quite new and it's been painful and difficult and complicated. And there's been a lot of grief and a lot of loss and a lot of confusion, but also there's been a lot of joy. And in the stumbling, I have found people who are very firmly in my corner for life, right? So she will be glad that I've made it here. And I'm very thankful that I made it here now because I know that this sort of ease is something that people spend their whole life, their whole four score and ten (laughs) looking for, right? So I'm very thankful and I know that it's not to be taken for granted that I have been able to arrive at an awareness of the value of acceptance and to be able to make that choice in my daily life. I'm thankful that I made it here now because it means that for the rest of my life, uh, I'm going to be struggling a bit less and I've struggled enough. I'm tired, so I'm glad. You know this existential exhaustion that so many African and black women understand too intimately. I think I'm only now as a place where I'm able to begin to shed it. So I'm very much looking forward to that. So I think she would be glad that I'm here now, and she would be like, "You could have probably chosen an easier road. you could have you could have spared both of us some of the some of the heartache. oh man, but you deserve
3: a break <laughs> now, now, you know. You deserve the break. You <laughs> You're like, you yeah. <laughs> I think that's great. Um, yeah. We usually ask people what advice would you give to your younger self if you could, but obviously the nature of your extract kind of embodies that as well. But yeah, I just think that's such an important point. You've raised such great points in terms of not even just like prioritising yourself, but just a more realistic and pragmatic approach to activism. I think that is sustainable. Because I think so often people can burn out and they can, you know. Sorry
2: to cut you off, but I was having a conversation with one of the maybe two or three feminists that I know of with whom I I feel deep alignment about how so much of the focus of activism has been on fighting external things in the interest of some sort of vague ideal woman. It's like, It's very strange to me that there are feminist activists who prioritize feminist work and they're in feminist work with women who they do not treat well. I find that very strange. (laughs) Or LGBT activists who prioritize queer rights work, but you are alongside and in, in this work with other queer people, human beings, flesh and blood, who you do not protect and who you do not cherish. And I wonder who is the work for Because if the flesh and blood person in front of you is not feeling cared for, is not feeling seen, is not being, is not finding the strength and the love in their interactions with you to live their lives, then what is the thing that is our goal? I think that the purpose of activism or the purpose of any type of agitation for rights should be about people. But Older I get, the more apparent to me it becomes that for a lot of activists, the people are secondary. (laughs) It's very strange, Mm -hmm. they're abstract. It's it's very strange, yeah. It's like, yeah, there's an abstract future person that I'm working for, but you're going to be dead by the time these things materialize. So, what about the people who are alive with you right now? Yeah, wow, how are they coming away from interactions with you feeling depleted, feeling unseen, feeling raised? I've been on panels with queer rights activists who spend the whole conversation berating younger queer people for their choices. And I'm like, but you're the voice of whose movement then? Because these are, the, these are the human beings right now. So if you have no respect for these actual human beings in front of you, who is this fight for? I think for us to build movements that are sustainable, we have to delete the abstract beneficiary and begin to think about what it is like for the people who are in community with us, the people who are in relationship with us, to experience us. Are we translating our principles into our interactions with people? When we say that we stand for the dignity and safety and freedom of women and or queer people, do the women and or queer people in your life feel like they are safe with you? Do they feel like you respect them? Do they feel like you see and honor their dignity? If the answer is no, then girl, I don't know what the fuck you doing, girl. <laughs> right on. <laughs> oh, so um,
1: oh, yeah, so many pearls of wisdom. I mean, me, me and Natty always say this, but particularly today, I'm just like, yeah. I mean, you heard me earlier. I was saying like right on in that, but it's because yeah, I think. Um, oh, <laughs> was that a hug? <laughs> it was a right on. Um, yeah, <laughs> because yeah, you're, you're completely right. Like in the. You know, no one wants to be in community with people who are who treat them poorly, and like that's it. It's almost like a,
2: a wee bit hi- hypocritical, isn't it? Like that kind of uh, approach to your ideological work, if it's not reflective. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know that I would describe it necessarily as hypocrisy. In some cases, it is, but I think it's it's misplaced priorities, right? I think it's misplaced priorities, and it's very easy for our priorities to be misplaced, because for a lot of us, the legacy of activism that has been handed down is this legacy of an abstract beneficiary at some point in the future. And it is now, I think that, like you said, Matthew, that a lot of activists are stopping to ask, well, wait, why are we doing it this way? What I think is sustainable in activism is focusing on actual flesh and blood people. So the thing that I was saying earlier about where your gaze is focused, My gaze now is very much focused on the actual human beings around me that I would like to be in community with. And I'm thinking in practical terms about building power with these people, building love into my relationships and my interactions with these people and allowing that to be the thing that moves us forward, as opposed to thinking about some nebulous future dates that we may or may not be alive for. So, the power that we build because we prioritize one another, I think, will fuel us and keep us from getting burnt out in ways that sort of oppositional activism does not have the potential to do.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for that. I think that's such an important and actionable point to make in terms of the local being global, which is a quote of yours, I think, as well. So, get that in there for the last bit. And thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This-
1: I think one of the things I really liked about what she was saying, especially towards the end, was this idea of, I don't know if this is the right word to describe it, but maybe it is, like community kindness almost. So just making sure that, like, (laughs) it starts at home. (laughs) You know, (laughs) your ethical sensibilities can't just extend to people on the internet and and what you project into the world. They have to start with, with being good to the people who are actively around you. And that can be in in big and small ways. The other thing I thought was interesting about this interview was uh, the realization that she's obviously come to quite recently, which is that she wants to protect her peace, which is fine and good. And I love that. And I think protecting your peace is is incredibly important. And we can we can sometimes like start fires and sometimes we can just float around. She's obviously more than that, but yeah. <laughs>
3: I agree I think and I think they're kind of linked as well like the idea that I think when you just put the human first beyond like the politics or the philosophy it's like if she protects her peace she's probably going to be in a headspace or have a bit more perspective on life as a human being as well as just you know like the abstract but you're so right I think that community kindness point is one that people don't talk about enough and I was saying to someone just recently like it makes you feel like um, that girl from Mean Girls who's like I just want everyone to get along (laughs) and talk about rainbows and unicorns because you just feel like, you know, like it's kind of like the most basic point in terms of it's something that everyone should do. And yet it gets so like sidelined ahead of like, you know, going viral or just being a contrarian or whatever it is that motivates all these other parts of us or, you know, just like sometimes just an impatience with the world and the way of life. But at the heart of it, people who preach, you know, Certain types of philosophies or certain types of politics often aren't actually just loving themselves and loving those around them, and it's so contradictory. But it's easy to get caught up in the rest. And I think if you prioritize your own peace and protect that, you don't get as eaten up by those things that make you lash out in those ways. And but it's such a hard balance because you always want to feel like you're doing enough too.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
3: And I think especially in this time, the time of the pandemic, we're kind
1: of we are stuck indoors. The way we interact is mainly in these online forums, and we know had many conversations, probably on this podcast, with our friends, with other very online people like Natty and I are. I think it's taken me a while, but I've there's just no, like there's just no point in Twitter beefs. It's <laughs> just no point. It doesn't make anyone happy. It, like I just I'm gonna try and really wean myself off it in the next like twelve months. Like I would love to get to a point where I just don't engage
3: <laughs> you know what? I've never even really been that person I think I just like I care about loads of things I just don't deeply care about like lots of social things I think but recently I've been fi- I think again as you said it's lockdown we're on our phones all the time I've been watching some things putting some things together and it is such an interesting like ecosystem I would call it and in terms of like thought preservation like and like brand preservation I think I feel like genuinely sometimes people tweet certain things or get involved with certain things because they're maintaining a brand this is all completely off topic and definitely not relevant for the podcast but I genuinely feel that way like you said then their opinion is never going to change because they don't care what you have to say back to Ola men any sort of
1: final thoughts on what you thought of her I definitely want to engage with her work more after this I I hadn't come across her before our amazing producer, I want obviously introduce us to her work, but I think she's really interesting. She she's one of those actually very rare people where I was like, I would love actually is it rare? Maybe it's not rare. But I was like, I'd love to meet you in real life
3: and like be your mate. You just seem really great. And like I thought the same. I thought she had a real like way with words as well. And I would love to if she was able to like get into some serious literary stuff, I would definitely buy buy all of her materials. And I also watched her TED Talk, which I think was really interesting as well. And yeah, I think she's a really, I hope she doesn't, you know, I mean, I do hope she prioritizes her piece enough, but I hope she doesn't prioritize it to the point where she's no longer engaging in the public sphere because I think her voice is very necessary and very needed. This has been an I.I. Studios production. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can sign up to become a member at gal-dem.com for access to exclusive discounts with our favourite brands and partners, early access to tickets for Galdem events, an advanced copy of our annual print issue, and so much more.
1: Make sure you're following us on all major social media platforms at Galdemzine for the latest independent journalism or visit our website, which is gal-dem.com. Galdem has a book, I Will Not Be Erased, our stories about growing up as people of
3: colour. It's available in all good bookstores or online. If you loved this episode of Growing Up With Galdem, be sure to subscribe, rate and leave a review. We'll catch you on the next episode. Here's a cool fact.